folk, turn again in your Bibles please to that chapter 1 Kings chapter 6. A few things before we get to that but we'll get there in due time. Now our general theme in this series is Solomon, a case study of culture which we looked at last week, human effort and God's purposes. Last week we looked at how culture influenced Solomon's family life and also his administration of Israel. Followers of God always wrestle with two cultures, the prevailing culture with its pressure to follow the crowd and God's counterculture with its call to trust and obey him. Solomon struggled with his sexuality and with the subtle attractions of wealth and power. Many today still struggle with the same issues. There are lessons for all of us in these early chapters of 1 Kings. Today we look at Solomon's major construction program, the centrepiece of the development of the kingdom that he inherited from David. He devoted intense effort to his building program over many years. So this study is about Solomon and his efforts and we'll focus on his influence and power and then on his wealth. But this is timely because we're starting a new year and human effort is important in the work of God. We have uh, time to review our programs in the church and those who lead and help in the execution of those programs. We are renewing and extending our buildings and we need people. We need to maintain and clean our existing facilities. We need those who will oversee and administer our congregational affairs. There are lessons here in this study today as we come to start a new year. So this study is about Solomon and his efforts first of all. Before going into details though, we should get an overview of how the writer of First Kings arranged his material in these chapters. Remember that he wrote some 400 years before the actual events occurred and so he'd had a long time to consider, assess and reflect on outcomes and their effects. Now we see in this diagram that there's a kind of reverse pattern to the structure but the biggest section actually comes right in the middle and it's to do with the buildings which are the main focus of these 11 chapters. However, in the very middle of the temple story there's one paragraph that emerges as the key to the entire passage. It's about the palace. So the writer wants us to see that the royal palace is the centre of attention among all the buildings that Solomon built in Jerusalem. 
Now with that sort of background, we'll go on now to the rest of our study. So we begin with point number one, which has to do with Solomon's influence and power. In chapter five, where Solomon made his preparations, as we saw last week, the first issue was the supplies of suitable timber. And Solomon developed an extensive trading policy with other nations And this slide gives an overview of those activities. Now many of the goods were transported over land routes shown by the green lines. But sea voyages were also used. They're the thick blue lines. And Solomon imported timber and gold and copper and other building necessities but he also imported spices and perfumes, exotic birds and animals for other purposes. Now he exported agricultural products and clothing and used his wisdom for great gain and his trade brought him widespread influence throughout the world of his time. Well now we go on to the building of the temple. That's the reading that Sam read for us. And after arranging supply of the materials and then conscripting his labour force, Solomon in chapter 6 verse 1, look at it now, began to build the temple of the Lord. Now just skip to the very last verse of chapter 6 and we see that it took him seven years to complete the work. So here's a seven year building program that he's undertaking. We read a little bit of the details but the rest of the chapter fills us out with things that had to do with the size and the shape of that building which was the temple. Now this slide gives an artist's impression of Solomon's completed temple. Of course it was originally conceived by David But this building was considered to be more appropriate than the portable and smaller building that had been in use since the time of Moses, the tabernacle. And additional to the actual building, you'll see on the left-hand side a huge water container called the laver. It was so big that it also was called the sea. And then the main altar which is on the right hand of the diagram and of course that was used for the animal sacrifices. Solomon's temple. Now in this cutaway view by a different artist we can see the block construction that was used and then some of the internal features. And if we imagine entering the porch on the right hand end we come first into the holy place as the main interior room and beyond it the holy of holies through a pattern of folding doors. Now all the interior wood panelling was ornately carved and then overlaid with gold as you can see there. Now along the two sides, the back and the front if you like and then across the the rear of the building there were rooms three storeys high and in front of the building again we see the laver and on the other side the altar and that project took seven years to complete. 
Now I mentioned the tabernacle a moment ago and it's very instructive if we compare some things about the tabernacle and the temple. Since these two buildings had a similar function, uh, we can compare how they were provided. Last week in 1 Kings 5, we saw that Solomon imposed taxes and ra- to raise the necessary funds to do the building and then he conscripted thousands of his own people to carry out the work. By comparison though, if we turn back to Exodus 38, 36 about the tabernacle, the people there gladly gave their gifts and skilled workmen volunteered their labour until it got to the point where Moses had to instruct them to stop giving because there was more than enough for all the work. Now there's a significant difference in those two. For the temple, the people responded to Solomon's instructions. But for the tabernacle, the people responded to God. I want you to remember that. Now we can also compare, while we're doing this little exercise, how the work was carried out. Now in 1 Kings 6, of which we read a little bit, it was Solomon who did, or at least was responsible for, every part of the job. He made this, he made that, he made something else. There's a total of 31 references in that chapter to what Solomon did. It comes through to us that it was very much Solomon's project. But reading through Exodus 36 again, it's the skilled workmen who are repeatedly named. They joined and they made and they built and so on 25 references. But the tabernacle workers followed the instructions given by God to Moses. They saw their work as being God's project. So the author, writing his material, I think has deliberately constructed his work this way, pointing out that Solomon did so much of the work. He gave all the instructions. This was Solomon's project. And in chapter 6, verses 11 to 13, we see that God was concerned about this. And in verse 11 he says, The word of the Lord came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, listen, if you follow my decrees, carry out my regulations, and keep all my commandments and obey them, I will fulfil through you the promise I gave to David, your father, and I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. There's a very clear message that comes through in those few verses. For the divine presence to be among the people it was absolutely essential that Solomon obeyed God. God's presence did not depend on Solomon building the temple. Solomon's obedience was much more important to God than his building. 
So some of the concerns we saw last week become stronger. Our concern grows. Was Solomon using his gift of wisdom in the right way? Well, that's a little quick run through building the temple. We move on to building the palace. Turn in the Bible this time to chapter 7 and you'll see there's a little paragraph there named Solomon builds his palace. Just one paragraph and we noted earlier that this paragraph is placed in a strategic location. It highlights this paragraph as the central and pivotal one in the whole story of Solomon. It starts by telling us it took him 13 years to undertake this task. And then the dimensions, and if you look at the footnotes below, you'll see that the cubits are converted into metres. And when you compare the dimensions of palace buildings with the ones for the temple... The palace is much bigger. Of course, in one sense, it had to be much bigger. He's got a thousand wives and concubines to look after. Where are they going? Well, that's another story. But we do notice in verse 8 that as well as building a palace for himself, he built one for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had married there are little references to Pharaoh's daughter that are injected into the 11 chapters at very strategic points. Here's the second of the three. But there were also associated courtyards and terraces and you get the impression that the splendour of the palace dominated the landscape. Now here is one idea of how the entire complex, temple plus palace buildings may have looked drawn as a planned view now the temple part is at the top you'll see some things you recognise the the building itself and then the laver or the sea and the altar and then the lower portion the larger portion consisting of several buildings make up the palace complex now this is the area to which Solomon devoted most of his time and effort. The palace may have been the centrepiece as far as Solomon was concerned, but to the author of this book, First Kings, it was the temple that portrayed God's presence with his people. It was the more important thing. And so having just told us about the construction of the palace he reverts again in verse 13 to giving us many more details about the temple but before leaving this section and there we see something that that gives us an overall view of the grandeur of the whole structure temple plus palace buildings but with the palace buildings dominating we do need to note that this was indeed a wonderful example of Solomon's gifts and abilities, his power to get things done, his influence amongst other nations to provide what was needed and also his wealth to be able to pay for the whole operation. 
But now skip over to chapter 10, turn over a few pages to chapter 10 and you'll see that the first paragraph in that chapter talks about the visit of the Queen of Sheba. Now the Queen of Sheba came from a country well south of Judah and when she came and saw, this is what happened, when she saw all the wisdom of Solomon and the palace he had built and the food on his table and the seating of his officials and attending servants in their robes and his cupbearers and the burnt offerings he made at the temple of the Lord, she was overwhelmed. What overwhelmed her? And again the writer expresses this part of the story in such a way that it's Solomon who is emphasised. It was his palace, his table, his officials, his servants, his cupbearers, the things he did. She was overwhelmed by Solomon's efforts and again that is significant for us as readers. Well just a little bit about the building of the palace. Now we move on to our second point this morning and that's to do with Solomon's wealth. What we have considered so far develops awareness that Solomon not only had power and influence but adequate wealth to carry out his extensive development in Jerusalem. Now we've mentioned his taxation system and his successful trading activities. The second paragraph in chapter 10 after the Queen of Sheba's visit gives some details of Solomon's great wealth. Now verse 14, have a look at it. The weight of the gold he received annually was about 23 tonnes. In today's terms that reduces to $1,300 million every year. How long did he reign? 40 years. We go on to read that Solomon's throne was overlaid with gold. His household articles were gold. The temple was lined with gold. In fact, nothing was made of silver because silver was of little value in Solomon's days. But more than that, he had a fleet of trading ships carrying gold, silver and ivory and apes and baboons. You may have noticed them in the photo about uh, Queen of Sheba's visit. In fact, King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon. Incredible wealth. But again we wonder, was Solomon becoming more preoccupied with his influence, power and wealth than with trusting and obeying God? Is there a drift occurring as the years pass? Well, we should draw together some things from these two points that we've considered this morning. 
Solomon's influence was considerable. His power formidable and his wealth immeasurable. Now two key reasons for this were number one, God's gift of wisdom and secondly, his sustained hard work. The outcome was incredible national development and international fame. But what does God think? We go to chapter 11 and verse 9. Chapter 11 and verse 9. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Then to verse 11. God is speaking and he says, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my commandment and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Now at first we think that's fairly harsh, almost unfair. But I want you to look more closely. God's purpose for Solomon can be seen in this equation. Gift plus motivation plus effort gives the outcome. But the equation took on a different form as Solomon pursued his efforts. He misused the gift. He had a mistaken motivation. He actually misdirected his effort. And the end result was a misguided outcome. That misguided outcome led to disastrous consequences for Solomon personally but also for his people. The monarchy did go on for many years but it was mainly a story of decline. And then finally in 586 BC the Babylonians overran the land, captured the king of the time, destroyed Jerusalem and took most of the people into exile. Now it was actually there in Babylon that the shattered exiles read these chapters that we have been studying. They knew what had happened. They would have been painfully aware that nothing remained of Solomon's great efforts although the prophets did indicate that the story had not yet ended. So what do we take from this? God's purpose still remains the same for us as for those in Solomon's time. Gift plus motivation plus effort brings outcome. Now what gift has God given me? Paul reminded the Christians at Rome that we have, we have different gifts. And he went on to name a few. Serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading. Now what, what is God's gift for me? But then what motivates me to use and develop that gift? Jesus crystallised this issue as being one of love for God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. 
Yes, it was the greatest commandment, but it serves as our motivation for service. God has given the gift and we love the one who has given the gift and we serve him because he is the God who gives. It's a terrible blunder to be driven by self-centred ambition. What motivates me in my service for God? And then what sustains us? Paul reminded the believers at Colossae that in his work as an apostle proclaiming Christ, he laboured with all Christ's energy that so powerfully worked in him. Christ's energy at work. And then he went on to remind them that whatever you do, whatever you people at Colossae do, whatever you people at Montmorency do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. We are at work to build God's kingdom, not Solomon's or mine. So we learn that what we are matters more to God than what we do. Our studies in James last year reminded us that faith without works is dead. We need both faith and works. But then you see it's what we are that determines what we do. There is a priority. Loving and obeying God comes first. And then what we do the exertion of our meagre human efforts actually contribute to God's intended outcomes. Now, so much for Solomon and his efforts. What about me and my efforts? The start of a new year. We need people to run our programs, to lead us. We need people to help us in various areas. What gift, what motivation, what effort, what outcome when we come to December 2013? I want you to think about that. Now next week we'll continue in 1 Kings but I want you to have a look at a couple of other readings. First, Exodus 19, verses 1 to 8, and Ecclesiastes 2, 1 to 11. And at this point you'll wonder what on earth that has to do with Solomon. We shall see. To be familiar with those passages would be helpful for next week. Now we sang earlier... that song about God speaking to us from his holy word friends I want that this one verse now should be our closing prayer together you see it talks about our acts and our deeds our effort Lord will you please help us to get it right 
so that through us your purposes are fulfilled for your glory. Now if you can pray this prayer together, will you join me? Our closing prayer. Let us pray. Speak, O Lord, for we've come to you and received the food of your holy word. Take your truth, plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfil in us all your purposes for your glory. Amen.